0: I would ask you to open your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do. If you don't, just listen in, uh, to the book of Psalms. And, before, and we are in today, uh, Psalm 20. So this um, passage is uh, actually a very difficult psalm. This is one of the reasons we have to really study to show ourselves approved unto God. Some passages we read are very obvious. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him... Should not perish, but have everlasting life. And there's others that require us to dig a lot deeper. This is one of those psalms. And after studying it this week, trying to really rip it apart, um, I've come to the conclusion it's a lot about trust, and in some ways, it's about crisis management. How many of you have ever been through a crisis in your life? Put up your hand. Let me see it. Uh, If you haven't, then you will. How many think you will be through a crisis at any moment in your life? Good. Good, we are, we've all gone through a crisis at one time or another, whether it's the death of a loved one, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's uh, something going on in our family, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a relationship, we've all been through a type of crisis. The question is, is how do we respond to the crisis when it comes? That's the real question we have to ask ourselves. And I find out that you really find where, what people believe in when the crisis comes. You ever notice that? I mean, we can all talk a big game, but does our walk match our talk? I mean, we could sound like we're the most spiritual people in the world. You know, praise God, praise the Lord, great, great to see you today. And then the crisis comes, and that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we find out if our walk really matches our talk. And where our trust and foundation really is. And in this passage today, it's a little bit about crisis management, finding out where your trust is. What is your trust? Where is your trust? We might say in the Lord, but when we find out, life has a tendency to reveal the idols of our heart. You ever notice that? We find out as God, as Kenny was even talking about, what strips us away, what we really depend on, some of the comforts that we have, creaturely comforts, some of the relationships that we look to, so a lot of different things. We find out when that, Crisis moment happens where it, what we really trust in, and that's what this psalm is about today. It's a declaration of trust, but it's also a prayer. And I would encourage uh, us all to be have our, our our hearts open, our ears attentive, our eyes on the text to see what God has for us and how we might respond to a crisis situation. How we might see where our trust is. Now, it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I would ask you to all stand with me as we read God's Word together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 20, verse 1, to the choir master, a psalm of David, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence right now as your people, asking that you impress this truth upon our hearts, that you might show us where our trust lies. Lord, I ask that you convict us if we have any other trust in anything else rather than in you. And Lord, may we completely be honed to trust and see to you, look to you, to be trusting in you when the crisis comes, that you might show yourself to be God on our behalf, the one true God of the entire universe. So we give you this time today, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now there's a lot within this passage, so I would encourage you to stay with me as we go through this, piece by piece. We start off and we see that there is a superscription and we've seen within this, remember, this the one psalm is a part of the greater, what's known as the Psalter. There are 150 psalms or songs, and they're spiritual songs that were used by the nation of Israel in worship. We've talked about this before, that it is the hymn book of ancient Israel. And there are superscriptions, instructions about either the circumstances surrounding the psalm or something about the psalm that helps bring it out a little further. So we see here, first of all, to the choir master, a psalm, of David. Now it's an instruction. Actually, we find out later that this is a, a type of psalm that was to be sung with stringed instruments. That there would be people that were playing this psalm in corporate worship and they would be singing. There are actually some churches out there today that believe you shouldn't have any musical instruments within the worship. Did you know that? That it should just be vocal intonation or vocal worshiping. And they, they, they have some very weird ways of doing it, but here we can see clearly. When it says the choir master, not just that, but there's also actually many other psalms that talk about how to worship the Lord with stringed instruments, with the lyre, with the harp, and to worship the Lord in a variety of different ways to help prompt our hearts to worship. You know what? We like music. How many of you like music? You like good music. You know why you like music? Because we like to sing. We were created to to make a joyful noise, as we, we learned last week, but to also appreciate music. And there's something about music that lifts our hearts toward God. It, it, that's what happens, is our hearts are prompted to worship the Lord in a greater way. So we see that this is also a psalm of David. Now, we're going to learn that not every psalm that says it's a psalm of David means that David wrote it. It means that it could be dedicated to David. Now, the reason we can really see that, and a lot, a lot of times context determines what's going on here, are other words that we can see. Now, within this psalm, we're going to learn about the city of Zion. The city of Zion. We've all heard of that term, city of Zion, which it means the city of Jerusalem. But it was called Zion after David, King David, the the, uh, second foremost king within Israel's history, took this city, it was called Jebus at the time, and took it and became known as the city of David or the city of Zion. He also talks about burnt offerings and sacrifices. We're going to look into that. But the sacrificial system was put into place under Moses but it was really finding its fulfillment in what is known as the the era of the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple was this great grand structure in Jerusalem that all Israelites would make a pilgrimage to, and they would offer sacrifices. And we can see from the language here that the temple system was already in place, and the temple was probably in place. And David didn't build the temple, but his son Solomon did. So it's probably referring to a king after David and Solomon that is a beneficiary of this temple. And some actually believe that what was going on here was King Jehoshaphat, who was one of the, the Judaic or the tra- kings of Judah, the, the nation at the time, and they were being besieged, and war was, they were on the precipice of war. And so they have come to the temple to seek God's face in the middle of this. And they're asking for God's blessing. So they're, they're on crisis. I mean, think about it the precipice of war. Do you remember how you felt after September 11th? Do you remember that? I mean, or to think of anybody going into battle, some of you that are older were around when World War II began. I mean, think about how many people were praying as a nation. I mean, it, it's not an easy decision to go into war. And for the nation of Israel, I mean, they were threatened. They, they, they weren't the, the big kids on the block. They were surrounded very often by nations that hated them, a little bit like now, and that wanted to destroy them. And they had to ask themselves, where is our trust? Where is our focus? And they said, we are the people of God. We are identified by your name, God. And we, we trust in you. We're not trusting in anything else in this world. Now, the first question is, though, is what do we do when we face a crisis? Now, here we're going to see as we jump into Psalm 20. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The you there is referring to the king. And it's like one individual saying, May the Lord answer you, king. And some people think it's a Levitical priest. Or even the army as a whole saying, May the Lord answer you. It's what I call a secondary prayer. It's they're saying the prayer out loud, but they're saying it to that king, but it's going up to God. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. When trouble comes. When that crisis comes. So he's saying the Lord... May the Lord answer you. In other words, they're asking God for help. How many of us, when trouble comes, do we first run to God? Or do we try to figure out how to handle it ourselves? I think most of of us try to do that. We think that God's too busy, and he's like the last resort. But how many of us are willing to ask God in the help of our situation, no matter what it is? Do you run to God when you're facing trouble at your work, in your marriage, with your children, or maybe, maybe you're trying to find all these different ways without having God's help. See, I mean, we're, we're all tempted to do that. We, we think we can do it ourselves. We're the Carpe Diem generation. Seize the day. We can do it all on our own. The psalmist is saying here, no, no, no. May the Lord answer you. Notice, as we've established over and over again, may the Lord, it's all in caps. Did you notice that again? This means that this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. This is the name as we've learned time and time again over the past several weeks that Moses, that God revealed of himself to Moses when he was at the burning bush. This is the one true God. Not just the generic God. The one true God. May the Lord answer you in your time of trouble. He's, saying, he's asking God's help in the midst of this situation. But his asking is based on something. It's based on a promise. Look at verse 6 with me. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. See, God will answer. Gerald Wilson, in his commentary on this psalm, says this. "The The first person verb here is also a perfect form. It is introduced by a temporal article, which is now. It's like temporarily now, but he says, now I know this is perfect which means it's it's done, it's completed, provides transition to this new section. He says the nuance of the perfect word here uh, implies a knowledge that has come to a finished understanding rather than an ongoing developing knowledge. The one who knows in this way knows certainly, and he's able to communicate the results of that knowledge with assurance like the speaker in our psalm. In other words, he's been given a promise. There's a certainty here. See, when we can ask of God, we do so because we've been given a promise that God will hear us. You know what? We, I don't think we believe that. I think we, we really just talk a good game. But when crisis comes, that's when we all freak out. Everything that we know is totally gone from that moment in time. And that's where we have to really decide where is our trust and who is our trust in. Or do we, do we really believe the promises of God? How many of us are willing to take a step of faith according to what God has revealed of himself within his word? You know, most often we don't take steps of faith. You know why? Because we want to walk by sight, not by faith. But the Bible's pretty clear. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. Because so often God will take us to a place where we are to take a step of faith. But we, we don't want to. We want the sure thing. We want what we can see. But God's saying, I am the sure thing. You have to trust me in this. I'm doing something not only for you, but I'm doing something in you as we go through this. So God has given us a promise. The Lord will hear us. He will save his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven. Now his anointed here is the term that's used for the Jewish king. The Jewish king has known as the anointing oil on him, meaning he is the representative of the people. He is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord will answer him from his holy heaven. The heaven is God's abode, meaning that God himself will answer from heaven. It's not just a God, the God, the highest God, with the saving might of his right hand. The right hand within scripture is a figurative, figure of speech that denotes God's power and his preeminence. Then he, he goes on and he says, well, the, that God, we, God will hear us. He has promised to act on our behalf and God doesn't go back on his promise. And his, this promise enables us to have God's protection. Look at verse 1 again. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. Now the phrase the God of Jacob appears 18 times in the Old Testament. 12 of them in the Psalter alone. It's God's way of saying uh, the God of your fathers. Meaning that you are the people of God. You are the people of God. May the one true God answer you. Now, the dominant theme of this psalm is to trust, to call on the name of the Lord our God and trust in Him. At the beginning of this, hope is expressed the name of the God of Jacob, who will protect the faithful one, so that the name of God brackets the whole composition from beginning to end. The name of God is, of course, as we mentioned before, Yahweh, as it's very specific and explicit, Now, what happens is, God is the one who delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt, and He had cemented a covenant relationship with His people on Mount Sinai. And by revealing Himself by His true name, He is revealing His essential character. He promises in His name to be with and for His people, to continue to reveal Himself over a lifetime of experience with Israel, and yet to remain free from any attempts to coerce coerce or manipulate his action. You can't play games with God. Don't think that you can fool God. We often think that God is dumb because we make these deals with God. God, I will do this if you do this. We're like a little kid with the fingers crossed behind. God knows our heart. God knows exactly what we're thinking, what we're feeling. You can't coerce or manipulate God. He is lying his He's laying out his essential character and nature by revealing his name. And this Psalm 20 affirms that as as we come in the name of the God of Jacob, we are to accept the character of God revealed in this name, to commit our relationship with him, and to accept the implications of that relationship. Meaning that we enter into a relationship with God, and we, we we make sure that we don't try to lie to, coerce, or manipulate God. When he says, help from the sanctuary... Or support from Zion, the linking of the two places that the psalmist has the Jerusalem temple in mind. Which would show clearly that David is not the author because the temple wasn't built until after him. And as I mentioned before, the name of Zion originally referred to a prominent ridge in Jerusalem. It's south of the present temple mount. I don't know if you've ever seen that on TV, but there's a present temple mount. And he has there's one section of it that was called the the region of Zion. On which the original Jebusite city conquered by David stood. And the term has been associated with the hill on which the, the temple was erected, erected. Now later, during the exile, Zion can refer to the whole city. It's like the city of Chicago. We call it the what? What nickname do he have for Chicago? We have several. The windy, windy City, right? So it's saying it's the Windy City or the City of Broad Shoulders. But here it's saying that the name of God of Jacob dwells in this city and in this people. And help from the sanctuary, from Zion, it's calling to mind temple language. Because if you remember right, that God would reveal himself in what was known as the, the most holy place. And he would come down in the Shekinah glory of God. And smoke would fill the entire temple. This is the manifest presence of God. And that even the priests of God would not be able to minister there. They had to run out because it was, it was filled with his presence. So it's saying when God would help from the sanctuary, that God's presence would be in the midst of this situation that God himself will come to your aid. Now think about that. God would come to your aid in the midst of your situation because he cares for you. See, the thing though that I've noticed with our generation that we're living in today is some for some reason we think we are deserving of God's help. We think of ourselves much higher than we should. We think we're much better, that we're deserving, that we should have it our way. I'm amazed at ad agencies. The ad agencies, all it's all about you. I mean, walk into a mall, it's a temple to you. It's all how you want it. You are the customer. You are always right. Let me tell you that God, there are no customers with God. And the customer in this instance is not always right. God is the one who is always right. We can't place ourselves over God. There's a lot of things that people say about God. They're like, well, I don't like that about God. I prefer to think of God this way. Well, I could care less how you prefer to think of God. Right. Right. I, I I really do. I, I I could care less what I think of God. You should care less what I think of God in my natural state. The question is, is what does God say about Himself? Amen. And how do we respond to that? So, when the psalmist is saying, I want help from sanctuary, from from Zion, from the presence of God. I want God's help in the midst of this. They're saying, God, we need your presence here. Now, God's promise for protection is based on his provision. That God is the one who provides. See, when God has tied himself to something, he will do it. His name is on the line. He is the one who has given us himself. He is the one who has provided us with salvation. He's the one who signs that promissory note. He is the one who has provided us with deliverance. We didn't bring this about. See, we don't have that ability to do it. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. No more than we have the ability to jump to the Hubble telescope on our own. We don't have that ability. You can try as much as you want. You can have LeBron James jump up and try it, and he'll do better than me. But both of us... Or woefully short. God, we cannot do that. Only God can do that. He is the only one that's provided a way for us. He will provide for us. He is the one who grants our heart's desire, and he is the one who fulfill all of our plans, as verse 4 clearly shows. Now, let's look at verse 4 for a moment, because we can really get tripped up with verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, your heart's desire is actually a very bad translation. It literally is, may the Lord give you according to your heart. Now, we must be careful in understanding what this means, because as Woody Allen clearly told us, the heart wants what it wants, right? As he said that to justify his illicit relationship with his ex-wife's adopted daughter. So many, I mean, decades younger than himself. But he said, the heart wants what it wants. Well, it's right. And you know why? Because as Jeremiah clearly told us, the heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? And even, even uh, you hear Jesus talk about out of the heart come evil thoughts, impurities, and a whole host of other evils. In Proverbs, as a matter of fact, we are to guard our hearts, for everything we do flows from it. You know why? We need a new heart. See, I'm amazed, uh, even the book of Ezekiel talks about us getting a new heart, that God removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We had a uh, little Kendall, Kendall, you guys know, some of you know Kendall in our church, a little, she's one year old, she is Linda Brandt's granddaughter. The little girl needed a heart transplant, heart transplant. I'm amazed that this one year old little girl can have a heart transplant in our day and age that we can take a heart of another individual and put it in this small child. And I remember when Linda called the church and she said, we have a heart She'd been on the donor list. It was amazing to think about this little child could have a heart. At one hand, I was rejoicing that this little girl has a heart, and the other side of it, I'm just supremely sad because another child had to die for her to have that heart. And then to go through all that six hours of surgery, they bring the heart in, they connect all the different valves of this little girl's heart, I mean this little, little cavity of a little girl, and then to give her a new heart, and now she's doing well. She's doing well. But you know what? When the scripture says that our, all of our hearts are desperately sick, and that each one of us we need a new heart, and someone had to die to give us a new heart, and that was Jesus. He had to die to give us a good heart transplant, because we can't do the things that God wants us to do without having the spirit of God within us and giving that new heart that Jesus gives. So we have God's provision. Where do we guarding our heart? And the heart refers to the center of one's existence, thought, feeling and will. But what does it mean then that God will give us according to our heart? Gerald Wilson, again, uh, a man who wrote a commentary just on this passage, a brilliant commentary. He says, since the original form of Psalm 20 was addressed to the Davidic king, meaning he was a descendant of David, this phrase is used to describe an essential parity between David and the heart of God when David is first anointed as king. As 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. David was a man with... A heart similar to that of God. And in the following chapter, the armor bearer of Saul's son Jonathan follows his master into a risky engagement with an expression of solidarity. He says this, Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul, literally according to your heart. So in Psalm 20 then, what God gives has a certain parity with the heart of the recipient. If, like his father David, the king's heart is like the heart of God, then his plans will succeed and his request will be granted. If, however, like Solomon, his heart is not like that of David and of God, he can expect judgment like that visited on Solomon and Abijah. So, when he says, though, that may, or says, may he grant you your heart's desire, in that if your heart is like God's, God will answer you. If your heart wants what only your heart wants that's separate from the plan and provision and will of God, then you're not, you're not going to get that. That's a corrupt desire. But if you unite your heart with that of God, according to what He has revealed within the Word of God, you want what God wants, God will grant it to you. We have to be very careful. Now, what is this basis, though, of our trust? Look look at verse 3. May He remember all your offerings. And regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. Now notice that last word, Selah. It's not a word that we use very often. There's a music group that's named after it. But it literally means stop and think. Think about what was just said or is written. You know, here the sense is that the psalmist wants God to remember that the king has fulfilled his obligations of sacrifice and temple worship. They want God to accept the king's offering for sin so that no barrier prevents divine support for his activities. In this context, the desire of the king's heart and all the king's plans surely refer to the mutual hopes of king, people, and army for success in the coming battle. Now, we are obviously very unfamiliar with the sacrifices and offerings in our world today. So let's give a bit of a background. God gave the sacrificial system through Moses. Remember, Moses looks like Charlton Heston. Cecil B. DeMille showed us. Okay. And he gives it to him, and he instituted it to the people of Israel when they're wandering within the wilderness. And there's so much within the sacri- if you read If you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, especially the first five books, I guarantee some of you, now you can be honest, you made it through Genesis, no problem. You maybe even made it through Exodus, no problem. You got to Leviticus, and it's like someone pulled your parking brake on the expressway. Because it starts talking in terms and in phrases and, and things that we aren't very familiar with the sacrificial system. Now here we see that there were, actually if we were to look and study it, there were actually five different types of offerings the Israelites had to do. The first one was called the burnt offering. The burnt offering affected atonement, meaning that covered the person's sin and emphasized total devotion to the Lord. Then there was the grain offering. It expressed an individual's petition for God's bestowal of covenantal blessings as well as dedication of the fruit of his or her labor to God. The third was the fellowship offering, also called the peace offering, and it accompanied expressions of thanksgiving or were offered in fulfillment of vows. As the occasion for a communal meal, such an offering emphasized covenantal fellowship. There was another one, the the fourth offering, the sin or purification offering, affected expiation, the removal of sin, for unintentional sins, such as those committed from negligence, as well as for what's known as ritual impurity. And then five, guilt or reparation offerings provided atonement for unintentional sins against God's holy things and commandments. The aspect of restitution was intrinsic to these mandatory offerings. Now, it's difficult for us to understand and uncover the full significance of this offering. I mean, in some sense, it was for the priest to understand and do, and uh, we don't get a lot of amplification in terms of their meaning. But... Leviticus 17 verse 11 indicates clearly enough that the costly blood of the animal sacrifice was God's provision to atone for the offender, whose offerings were most likely accompanied by psalm singing, confession of sin, and/or special prayers. Viewed in this light, it is clear that the laws of governing the presentation of Israel's offerings were not heavy burdens, but rather the welcome means by which God's people would officially recognize their sins experience God's forgiveness, and remain secure within His covenant. Now, let me go back to that word again. Selah. So he says, May the Lord remember your burnt offering, remember your offerings, remember, regard your, your, uh, your offerings. Sorry, verse 3. May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And then he says, Selah. Stop and think. Stop and think about that, what that means. We're to think about this sacrifice or offering that is here. The sacrifice... Is pointing actually to Christ. In context, it was to help atone for the sins of the king so that he would have fulfilled his covenant obligations before he was going into war. But, for the New Testament believer, sacrifices of the Old Testament were abolished because of Christ. Why? Because he fulfilled the point of all the sacrifices. Every sacrifice they had to go through was to show what it took for us to be clean in the sight of God. But the fact of the matter is, is that... The blood of goats and cows can't cleanse us completely. There had to be a perfect lamb that covered and cleansed us from all of our sin. As the book of Hebrews clearly states. The book of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. We don't do those anymore. But a body have you prepared for me. In other words, I'm the sacrifice. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. But then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, all of those things were to point to Jesus, and only Jesus is the one that paid the price for all of our sins. He is the one through whom we have redemption. We don't need to offer up burnt offerings any longer, because Christ himself, was offered up to God. In other words, we must be accepting his sacrifice. That's what it means to trust in God, is to accept his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. Now, Jesus' sacrifice enabled us to have three things, among others. I mean, I think someone's put it together that there are 37 things that Jesus' death just enables us to do. But I'm going to give you three. The first one is to be pure, that we can now enter into the presence of God. That's the second one. To be pure in God's presence, meaning that we can be pure and holy in the sight of God. We don't have sin any longer. In that Christ's blood covers our sin. So it doesn't matter what you've done, how bad it is that Christ's sin covers it. I mean, think about that. Think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Christ's sin. I mean, Christ has no sin, excuse me. But Christ's sacrifice... And His blood covers your sin if you've trusted in Him. So when you enter into the presence of God, when you die, you don't have to worry about that. There's not an awful dread of judgment because Jesus has paid the price for your sin. He's enabled you to be pure. He's also enabled you to come into God's presence. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's also enabled, his sacrifice has also enabled us to pray boldly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest or priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Notice the psalmist asked for God's help from the sanctuary, from Zion, from the temple. We can go boldly into God's presence because Jesus went to the cross for you. You are far off, unclean, ceremonially unacceptable. Now let me give you an idea of how that is. First of all, how many of you here are not Jewish? All right, then you couldn't even get anywhere near God's court. First of all, Gentiles could only get so close. So you're a Gentile, which is what a non-Jew is. You couldn't get any close. Now, say you were Jewish and you were here. Are you a woman? Well, then you could get so close and no further, because Jewish women could go so, for, so close and not any further. And you could say, well, I'm a Jewish man. All right, that's fine. You can get into the next layer. Now, are you a priest? Are you the tribe of Levi? No, then you could only go so far. So all of us couldn't get in. Everyone in this room couldn't get access to God. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't get access to God. There's no way that we could petition and get access to God. It's only through that's why the priest was the representative of the people. He had to offer atonement for sin. But now, when Christ died, the veil torn in two. And now, through our faith in Him, we can go into the very presence of Almighty God and we can pray boldly. Now, many of us do not pray, many of us don't go into God's presence. And how do we go into God's presence? Well, there's several different ways. We, when we come together, wherever two or three are gathered in Christ's name, Christ is in the midst of him, his spirit is in the midst of us. When you come to know Jesus, God gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then when you fill yourself or are filled with the spirit of God through reading the word of God, through hearing the word of God uh, preached, by praying, by confessing of sin, then you are being filled with the spirit. Imagine a helium balloon. The more that you are filled, the more that you are lifted up into the presence of God a good way to looking at it. The more that we are filled with the Spirit, the more that we can even get God's perspective, because as we go and have more communion with God, we are able to see our circumstances from a different angle. So we are to be filled with the presence, or to be filled with the Spirit of God, so we can go into God's presence. But many of us don't enter into God's presence. Many of us aren't filled with the Spirit of God. Many of us don't trust in the Lord. Why? It's because of unbelief. You know, I read a quote this past week that totally convicted me. It's from the book Francis Schaeffer, An Authentic Life. If you're unfamiliar with Francis Schaeffer, he was one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century. He was an apologist, meaning a defender of the faith, and an evangelist to intellectuals the world over. One morning, with his wife Edith, he said this. Supposing we had awakened today to find everything concerning the Holy Spirit and prayer removed from the Bible that is not removed the way liberals would remove it but the way that god had somehow really removed everything about prayer and the holy spirit from the bible what difference would it make practically between the way we work yesterday and the way we would and the way we would work today and tomorrow what difference would it make practically uh, difference would it make in the majority of christians practical work and plans aren't most plans laid out ahead of time isn't much work done by human talent energy and clever ideas Where does the supernatural power of God have a real place? Challenged by this, we begin to think and look over our own lives and work, and we ask God to give us something more real in our work of the future. So I'd ask you the same question. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning and prayer and the Holy Spirit were removed from the the Bible, how much would your life look different? I would venture to say the majority of the people in this room wouldn't be affected one bit. Not saying everyone, but I'd say the majority of us in this room. Because we really don't know how to commune, how to pray, and really believe and trust God at His Word. I think many of us are consistently battling with unbelief and too busy playing with the things of this world and the creaturely comforts therein to trust in the risen and true Christ. See, Francis Schaeffer understood that much of what we term Christian ministry is more about human ingenuity than the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enables us to experience the presence of God and to pray according to the will of God. Our trust of the Lord is communicated within these two spheres. See, so yesterday we had a great barbecue, and I want, to help, I want to thank everybody that came out and was a part of it. And you know, it's great to meet different people in the community. I love that. But do you know, barbecues don't change hearts. That's right. Only God, working by His Spirit, can convict and train to transform a heart. And he does that when his people pray. I was reading this morning lectures to my students by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers within church history. Uh, in the 19th century, he was, uh, had a church of about 5,000. Matter of fact, he was appointed pastor of a church of 2,000 when he was 19 years old. Started over 2,000 ministries in his life. And he talked about a man who was a great... Preacher and had all these different uh, individuals converted under his ministry. And this man thought he was something until he found out in prayer one day that God revealed to him that the reason there were so many converts was not because of him, but because of an illiterate man who prayed for souls every day to come to Christ. See, many of us, we don't see, we haven't seen a lot of conversions in our church because we're not praying for it, because we don't trust the Lord. It's not about just attending and doing your due diligence by attending service on Sunday morning. It's about intercessing with the people of God for those that are lost in sin. Here, in verse 5, look at that with me for a moment. We have to trust in the Lord alone. It is God alone who can deliver us. And we have God in our lives, we can shout for joy over the deliverance that will come. Look at verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions, your prayers, in essence. in essence, The name of our God set up our banners is uniting oneself clearly under God. The twelve tribes of Israel had banners under which they would unite, standards under which they found their identity and order. And for the believer, we faithfully set up our banner under his name, knowing that God is the one in whom we trust. He will fulfill all of our petitions, our prayers and requests. Now look again at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. His anointed anointed is referring to the king. The king in the Old Testament, as I mentioned before, is the Lord's anointed. God will save the king. God will, by his right hand, give him victory. Now look at verse 7. This is the heart. This is the heartbeat of the entire psalm right here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, chariots and horses in the ancient world were like battle tanks. I mean, this is in the midst of the Iron Age, when chariots were just gaining favor. And the Egyptians became known as the most expert, uh, expert chariot makers in the entire world. And they bred horses, and horses were just significant in strength. And and he's saying here, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, some trust in this outward strength that they think is there, a show of might, but we trust in God. We're not going to trust in that. Now see, for us today, let me ask you the question, what do you trust in? We're not trusting in chariots and in horses, but what do we trust in? Do you trust in politics? Do you trust in your credit card? What do you trust in? Are you trusting in your, your spouse, or a spouse or significant other or, or your success? I mean, there are three things that we can substitute for God. And I'm going to give you two of them real quick. There's many of them, but I'm going to give you three, three of them. Because what the psalmist is saying here is abandon all substitutes for God. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And here's three things, and I could give you a litany, a, a huge giant list. But here's three Many of us within this room trust in. We trust in our own success. We can trust in our own stuff. And we can trust in our self. And now I see this all the time. Matter of fact, I know of a. When I was growing up, the father of one of my buddies would take us sailing. And I remember him because he was a very perverted guy. I mean, if you can make a high school kid gross out, then you've got to be one perverted guy. And he significantly did that to me, and that was before I was a Christian. And I remember uh, after I came to Christ, I wanted to witness to him. As I shared, he scoffed at me. And he said, I know all of this stuff. I used to go to church. Surprised, I asked him why he quit going. He said, I was the treasurer. All I know, And I know who gave and who didn't give. We always had needs. I know that many of the church weren't giving anything, much less than 10%. We couldn't even, he goes, we couldn't even keep up the facility. And we had people in there that were driving the nicest cars. They weren't giving anything. And he said, so if they weren't going to give, then I wasn't going to live. I decided that I wasn't going to give either. I wasn't going to follow that because they, weren't, they didn't believe it. And now I look at all the stuff I have. i got a big screen TV. i got a boat, a new car, a new computer. I'm a lot happier now. I pitied him that day. Because of some believers or so-called believers' disobedience, he left the faith. You know, I see people make excuses like this all the time, and I tell them, don't let the patients in the emergency room keep you from seeing the great physician for yourself. Right. See, the problem is not with the great physician, but at the patients and them doing what the great physician told them to do. Usually the great physician has given us a prescription in order for us to be made right, but we think we know better than he does, and we quit taking our meds and doing rehab the work the way that we wanted to do it rather than the way he instructed us to you ever done that? You've been to rehab before and they tell you what to do and then you don't do it and you go back and they go, how are you feeling? I'm feeling bad. And the first question they ask you, did you do what I asked you to do? Did you do what I asked you to do? And many of us don't do what we asked him to do. People do it every day. I mean, my friend, he looked more to the patients rather than the great physician and he chose to substitute the irreplaceable savior of the world for replaceable temporary stuff. And people do it every day. They go to the altar of the mall, and they make sacrifices with Amex, MasterCard, and Visa. And they put themselves into slavery for stuff, vainly and wrongly believing that stuff will make them happy. They sacrifice their souls for stuff that rots, rusts, and blows away. Some people I know within this room, you trust more in politics than you do the Saviour. I remember after President Obama was elected, I was at the Allegheny Alliance Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. One of the most racially diverse churches, ethnically, I mean, just racially, economically. It was an, it's an amazing church in the heart of Pittsburgh. Reaching out to corporate executives and the homeless, and they're sitting right by each other. It's an amazing, amazing church. And it was, the, it was right after the election, and he stands up and he goes, Some of you here today are overjoyed, and there's others of you that are just completely depressed. Shame on you. He goes, because God is not in the White House. The Savior is not going to be in politics. He said, we rejoice at someone who comes from an African American, who is from, African American could be president of the United States in a nation. I mean, that's showing our progress as a nation that overcoming racial inequality. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. As my brothers and sisters that come from different ethnic backgrounds than my own will testify. But, but, I mean, we can celebrate that fact, but don't think that the Savior's in the White House. He's an earthly man. He is. And many of us think that for some reason, God wants to legislate our morality. We think that God himself, or for some reason, one party or the other one is God's choice for candidate. That's not how, how it is. And by the way, let me ask you this. Whether you are for him or against him, are you praying for our president? Whether you like him or not, and I know there's people in this room that some love you and some hate him. The question is, or do you pray for him? Pray for him. Pray that God would reveal himself to him, that God would guide him, that God would lead him. Because, see, many of us, that, that, it just reveals the idols of our heart. Where's our trust? Is it in the Lord? Is it in the political process? Is it what we can do? Is it in our stuff or is it in ourselves? Now, these three are just a sampling. There are many, many more, and I could give you a big list, but we don't have time for that today. The real question is, is what happens to those who trust in anything else than the Lord? We see that in verse 8. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, look back at verse 6 for a moment. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. Remember, this is a certainty. It's a promise, but it's also a certainty. We, We looked and we saw the temporal article with that perfect, which means that God has given us assurance of success in verses 6 and then verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Did you know that this is where the, uh, the Brits get God save the queen or God save the king? It comes from this passage right here. They get it from right here. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now the psalm concludes with a final plea that draws together the intercessory and personal prayer of this assembly that are praying for this king. The victory or salvation of the king is the foundation of communal security and is the answer to the prayer raised from the first. In their pleas that Yahweh, this covenant God, answer them, the supplicants, those who are, who are praying, are recalling, recalling their opening plea for the king, as well as the divine promise for deliverance in verse 6. This final plea serves almost as a concluding amen, proclaiming as it were, let what has been asked and promised truly become reality. The last verse contains the only specific reference to the king in the entire psalm, although the previous use of his anointed in reference to military activity left little doubt. Now what's the point? Is we have assurance of success. That if we trust in God, we have a guarantee of success. And it's only because of what God has done. He has made himself available to us. He wants to help us in our time of need. He wants us to help us manage our crisis. He is assured to help us. Now, that may not be in the way that we think. Because sometimes God needs to break us before he can bless us. That God has to show us where our true dependence is. That he has to let us go through the fire so we are purified. That he'll let us go through the valley so we can find fruit. Because remember, as we've learned before, where is the fruit grown? Is it on the mountain or is it in the valley? It's in the valley. I mean, many of us can recall the hard times rather than we can recall the good times. Because we see the hard times as a great lesson. And God shows us himself in the midst of the wilderness. We have an assurance of success. He is assured to help us. And this assurance is based on his promises, his sacrifice. But we must abandon all substitutes that tempt to steal our heart away from the one true living God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. That's where the world is. But we are to trust in the name of the Lord our God. He is the only one who can answer. And he is the only one who can grant certitude. He is the only one that can give us hope. Politics can't do it. The economy can't do it. Nothing that we can do can grant us certitude. Only trusting in God and trusting in His Son who died on the cross for our sins is the only way that we can have certainty. Now, my question for you is this. Are you trusting in the Lord or are you trusting in something else? What are you looking at? Are you looking at your own fame, your own strength, your own ability, your stuff? Are you trusting in the Lord your God? Anything else will burn Only trusting in Christ will last. Let's pray.